Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. the money and how did you get the woman? What is it? There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Well, I, th I think first we need to address that um, there's no Candace. Yeah, these are uncharted this waters. Is, this is the first time, this pairing. I mean, it's not the first time. In general. In our lives. 92 Squad have a long and proud history of solo ventures. Watching deeply, deeply horrible movies and loving them more than we should. I mean, there's something, like, we have to do something once Candace goes bye-bye. Like, in an evening, Candace falls asleep at, like, what, 6pm? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we need something to fill the time. So, uh, yeah, today, it's just us. Candace has been taken hostage. We don't really want to pay the ransom. It was a little unreasonable. Mm. Well, and you know, I mean, our our rule has always been that we don't negotiate with exactly hostage takers. Exactly, so... just like in in Air Force One. Yeah. So I guess that makes Candace at the mercy of Gary Oldman, which is a horrifying thought. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know you had a cat. Oh, yes, yes. Sit down. He's perfectly all right. He won't bite you. I'm not so sure. Now, as a matter of fact, you ought to be grateful to Sugar. If it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be interested in publishing your book. Then you are going to publish it. Oh, wait a minute. Just a moment. I said interested. As a matter of fact, I'm not convinced that the public is ready for the story yet. You said that about my book on flying saucers. Now everyone believes it. And my theory regarding the pyramids. Do you believe this sort of thing? I believe everything I write. Everything. Well, hello everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. Uh, today it's just me, Amelia, and Todd. Hello. And today we are, we're going into an avenue I don't think that has been greatly explored by cinema, and that is the concept of evil killer domestic cats. Now, the thing is, the Italians have tackled this at great length from what our cursory research has uncovered. Uh, Hollywood, not so much. And why is that? Do we think that things have happened in Italy that have led them to fear the cat That's... or... All I could think of is they've been burned, you know. There's there's something going on down there. They're very Peter Cushing about it, which is a reference you'll understand later. Um, so today we're going to be looking at two different films made approximately 10 years apart. Uh, we're looking at the 1997 anthology cat horror film The Uncanny and the 1987 film Uninvited. Not to be confused with The Uninvited starring Ray Moland. Uh, this one is very different. This was a source of confusion for Candace when she found <laughs> out in her hovel where she's being held hostage 
that we were doing this episode because uh, the first movie, The Uncanny, does also feature Ray Moland and Candace thought we were doing sort of a Ray-themed episode with The Uninvited from the 40s and this cat movie. Uh, not the case. This is a very, very different film. Yeah, very different film. Uh, very different Ray Moland we're dealing with <laughs> in The Uncanny. Um, we'll probably do the actual uninvited, the proper uninvited, at length later on, probably around Halloween, because it is worthy of a deeper dive, uh, and it doesn't have any mutant killer cats in it, so I'm <laughs> not interested, really. Should we get started? Let's dive in. I think we'll start with the with the uncanny. Yeah, go chronologically. What is there to say? Well, first off, I didn't quite realise this, but it's set in Montreal. Yes. Which makes sense the further you get into the film, because some of the accents go fucking hog wild. <laughs> Don't know what's going on. So that's because this um, is a British-Canadian production, which I didn't realize at first. I was like, why the fuck are we doing so much uh, Quebec content? But yeah, it, it was Canadian, so that's why. It's our fault, my fault, my people. It is your people. I directly blame Todd for this. <laughs> but um, so this is directed by, this is, I'm going to butcher this name, Dennis Hero and stars, it's a pantheon of stars in this one. We've got Peter Cushing, Donald Pleasance, Ray Moland, um, Samantha Egger, just a whole bunch of interesting people doing some very interesting things. So we open with, Peter Cushing, he's locking up his house, leaving his house, holding what seems to be a manuscript very close to his chest, looking over his shoulder, very aware that he could be being followed, very aware of noises around him. And we're like, what is going on? What is he so afraid of? Um, he bumps into somebody on these stairs, which are reminiscent of the exorcist stairs, I gotta say. Definitely. And he makes his way to his publisher's house, and his publisher is Raymoland, looking like Humpty Dumpty. He looks... Uh, in, you could crack his skull with a spoon. He's... He looks so bad. He's so bald. <laughs> and he lets him in, Peter Cushing in, and immediately Peter Cushing is thrown off because Raymoland has a white, fluffy cat. Uh, and he's like, I didn't know you had a cat. And Ray's like... Hell yeah, I do. This is my my little sugar because I don't know. Ray is now a, a man that just has cats. I mean, he does live in a very sort of plush apartment. Yeah, I don't want to be like. I know I'm 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 conforming to gender roles for cats here, but I do feel like I should point out that Sugar is a boy cat. Ray named his boy cat Sugar, and Sugar Ray. Yeah. <laughs> It's the team here. <laughs> it's quite jarring, but I mean, I get, I don't know. It's its an interesting dynamic for Ray to have with this cat. Anyway, so obviously Cushing has a little bit of hesitance because um, he believes that cats are evil supernatural creatures um, and that they are in fact the devil in disguise. So obviously he's a bit cagey towards this cat and... Ray is like, I don't believe you. Uh, and Peter Cushing is like, nah, I've got all this proof. Let me just tell you some stories about real things that actually happened regarding killer cats. And Ray, obviously, I don't know why they're having this meeting so late at night. It seems <laughs> like Ray should be in bed at this point, but he's ent entertains him, indulges him. Well, Peter Cushing is also like, towards the end, he's like, well, I want to get home. I don't like walking in the dark because I'm afraid of cats. 
And I'm like, he walked there in the dark. It was dark when you left it, the house, buddy. Insane. Abs- everything about this insane. It's su- such a weird tone for a movie. Let's just get that out of the way. It's a weird. It does movie. not improve. <laughs> um, so we go into our first of these tales of horror. Uh, this one is set in 1912, uh, and I'll just say for all of these time periods, definitely the James Wan school of historical accuracy when it comes to costume and makeup. Oh, big time. Because fucking hell, it's always 1977. No matter what decade they're trying to talk about, it's always the 70s. <laughs> the ni- in 1912, we open, there's this frail old woman lying in bed surrounded by cats, and her lawyer comes to, they're doing writing a new will, where this woman has decided she's going to leave her entire fortune to her cats instead of her only surviving relative who seems to be her nephew. I don't see anything wrong with that personally. The nephew seems like kind of a dickhead. But she's being attended by this maid. Janet is the maid, yeah. And there's a little bit of discourse between the lawyer being like, are you sure you want to do this? And the old lady's like, yep, I'm sure. She's also like, my only regret is that I won't be able to see his face when he finds out I left everything to the cats. Uh, Should you think of changing your mind about your nephew. I won't be changing my mind again, Mr. Wallace. You can be sure of that. My only regret is that I won't be here to see his face when you read the will. The lawyer then talks to the maid and he's like, how do you stand having all these cats around? And the maid says, We have a mutual understanding. I scratch their backs and they don't scratch mine. Which is a little bit humor um but then we like cut to janet having lunch with the nephew where she divulges that she's made out a new will her mistress made a new will and she's cut the nephew out and she produces a copy of this will and so the nephew he's like well you know very much like in it's always sunny in philadelphia eats the will um (laughs) mac eats the it's the agreement, except he like tears it up in the middle of this restaurant, which is very clearly 1977. And, and the maid's like, oh, well, that's not the only copy. It would be stupid if I only had one copy of the will, you moron. And she keeps the other copy of the will in a safe in her room. And the nephew is like, oh, well, you'll just steal it. And it feels like the nephew does a very little work uh, in this entire situation. It was like, you're the one who benefits the most. So Janet makes up her mind to steal the will she gets the combination i didn't quite see how she gets that i don't know if that was shown but um (laughs) she somehow gets it and she starts breaking into the safe while the mistress is asleep and all of the cats are surrounding her and there's quite a lot of cats there's so many cats yeah we should emphasize that's a lot of cats there are Um, a lot of cats there's got to be like 30 cats and i've got to say that house would smell really bad i have one cat and boy he can get stinky It's when she pulls the will out of the safe that the old woman wakes up and she's like, "Ah, I've got you and you're a bad person. You're going to hell, which is probably true. And she begins to call the police. She asks for the operator. Janet, she's like, oh, well, I've already been caught stealing. What's murder? Um, (laughs) What's a murder charge on top of that? So she (laughs) knocks the phone out of her hand and decides to suffocate the old lady. Just fully suffocate this old lady with a pillow. You're a wicked girl, Janet. A wicked, wicked girl who deserves to go to hell. But first, I'll see you go to prison. 
Please don't. Don't give me the police. I was hoping I wouldn't have to. This was Michael's plan. Escalates it so fast for very little benefit. Like, I don't think she's going to get the fortune. The nephew is. Like, I'm sure there's been some discussion that they'll get together afterwards. But, I mean, unless the ring is on the finger, you can't be sure of that. So she kills this old lady and the cats do not take kindly to this. They begin surrounding Janet and it's like the dumbest thing I've ever seen. She tries to go for the will, tries to grab the will and get out of it. But every time she does, a cat scratches her hand. Yeah, we've got she just keeps doing we've it. We've got two cats guarding the will. Like they're sitting over the will, like little security guards, and she keeps reaching back and getting scratched. And I compared it to Bart Simpson with the cupcake, and then you compared it to Charlie <laughs> with the cheese from Always Sunny. I think both are apt. Mm, wise guy, eh? Ow! 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 Shit! What's your name, young man? It's Charlie. Hold up, dude. I'm, I want to get this cheese here. Why don't you try the cheese under the green light, Charlie? I want this cheese. Um, just like, just will not learn her lesson. No. <laughs> Keeps going. Like, it's got to be like three times she does it, which is like, it's very believable because if a piece of paper is on the floor, my cat will sit on it for no reason <laughs> and will not let me take it. But it seems like these cats are a bit more cognizant of what is going on. And they've just seen their beloved owner killed and they're out for some revenge. So basically the cats kind of chase Janet into, I think, what is the servery or the storeroom? It's like a small room yeah, that's filled with... A sort of pantry type thing. Yeah. And there's a big bread box in it that <laughs> says bread. Uh, and that's the only food that she has. And she... She's pretty torn up at this point. Like, she's got a big gash in her leg and her pinafores all ripped to shreds. Okay, so this was a weird part that I did not comprehend at all. Is um, There's a moment in there when she first gets into the pantry where she starts licking her own wound, much like a cat. And you asked, yeah, and I'm like, is she turning into a cat? But they never elaborated yeah. on that at all. They never go into it. And it's like, man, I thought this was going to be some kind of cat woman situation where she becomes a cat and that's why the woman has so many cats but they just didn't lean into that i guess so instead she spends it seems like a couple of days yeah we see this we see like a cycle of sunsets yeah and like the milkman coming and the cats getting into the milk because we know cats love milk even though not supposed to give cats milk they can't process it and she eventually like just decides it's time well i think the nephew also comes yeah, he comes and he's... Why he doesn't come immediately is, like, why wasn't he waiting outside? Well, he, the you first know? morning he shows up in his car or his, like, you know, like, 1912 carriage thing and kind of waits, I think, for her to come out with the will. I think maybe it was, like, a rendezvous situation, but then she never comes out and he just leaves. He's like, bye. Obviously doesn't care about it that much. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think he comes into the house at some point, doesn't he? He does after, but first she, uh, I think she runs out of food is the implication after, like, three days. I don't know where she's yeah, been, she, like, like, going to the bathroom all this time. Yeah, that's not addressed. Um, but also she eats something out of a pot 
Yeah, that didn't look Which nice. Which I had had no idea what that was. It's sort of a brown, viscous substance, which is never a thing you want to eat. But, like, she put it on bread? Yeah. And then ate it, and she was like, ew, this is gross. It's like, just <laughs> eat the bread. Why are you dipping it in something? So I guess she's out of food, uh. and she's finally like, all right, I gotta, I gotta get out of here. So she emerges from the pantry, and there are no cats on the lower level of the house, so she sort of ventures back up to the old lady's room. Yeah, because she hasn't learned a lesson. No. And she, she opens the door, and boy... There are some cats in there. Yeah, those cats have not been eating bread. No. This is something I postulated that my cat would do to me if I did not feed him for three hours. <laughs> um, they've been feasting on their former mis- uh, mistress. Yes. Which, I mean, they're animals. Mm-hmm. They need food, too. They haven't got a big bread box. They haven't got know? brown stuff. So they... Um, they aren't well pleased to see Janet back. They're like, man, this bitch didn't learn her lesson the first time, huh? Janet goes for the will, and the cats really don't take kindly to this. They start attacking her, and essentially it leads to a scene where the cats are jumping on her in an attempt to flay her. And there's kind of a, uh, when the nephew comes in later, she's basically been replaced with a corpse dummy, and it appears as though somehow the cats managed to decapitate this woman. Like, her head looks separate. Yeah, I mean, far be it from me to underestimate a cat, but... They did a good um, job. They did a good job. And honestly, cats were right. She murdered somebody. That's sort of the underlying uh, trend of this film, is that in every situation, the cats are right, but Peter Cushing thinks they're the devil incarnate. The cats are entirely justified the entire time, and Cushing is like, mm, I, I just think these cats avenging... Their murdered mistress, that's not good. Do we want that? Do we want cat justice? Which, um, before she was kidnapped, Candace did watch this with us. Um, Candace thought that Cushing had perhaps done something to the cats and was fearful of their retribution. Which makes sense because he he was very anti-cat. Yeah. Anyway, so Cushing, he, he, he's like, man, shuts the book. There's all the proof you need to Ray. And Ray's like, I still don't believe you. He's like, anything could have happened, you know? There were cats in the house, sure, but we don't know what happened. We don't know what decapitated that lady and ate that other lady. Exactly. So um, Ray's like, well, I just, you're going to have to do a bit more convincing, Peter. And is this the point where Ray needs to let his cat out? <laughs> yeah. So to Sugar, Sugar needs to take a poopy and Ray lets him mm. out and Peter Cushing has a goddamn heart attack because some other cats are outside. <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to put the cat out. Oh, no. You don't expect me to let him do what he wants to do in here. Come on, sweetheart. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, nice boy. Come and see this. Now perhaps you'll believe me. Yes? But there were two cats. I saw them. They were... And then he's like, oh my god, the cats are like conspiring. <laughs> and he's like, he calls Ray over and he's like, there's a cat in your yard. And and Ray's like, I just see my cat doing a poo. Like, what what do you want to, huh? And then Push, Cushing's like, oh, well, don't let them back in. And Ray's like, I gotta let my cat back in. What's wrong with you? So he lets Sugar back in. Obviously, Sugar has been conspiring with other cats. Because there was another cat approached Sugar while they were outside and... Obviously, that has some kind of telepathic cat communication going on. Cat chat. Um, cat chat. The cat comes back in and 
Peter Cushing is like, well, I'll tell you about my next story of terror. And it's interesting to note the stories in this don't happen in chronological order because the next one is in uh, ni- set in 1975 uh, in the province of Quebec. Yes. It makes um, a big deal of noting. Quebec province. Yeah. So it opens on this this girl in a car being driven to sort of a country estate, I guess, and she's got a cat in a basket on her lap. And so we find out that this girl, Lucy, is an orphan and she's been um, brought to live with um, her aunt, her uncle, and her cousin, Angela, um, after her parents died in a plane crash. So she brings her cat, Wellington, who is a black cat, lovely cat, and very tolerant of being picked up all the time, <laughs> This is this cat. Because if I try and pick up my cat, man, I am getting scratched. She sort of settles in. Angela, her cousin, is a massive bitch. Um, who knew? As soon as she gets in into the house, um, Angela shows Lucy her room, and she's like, this is your room, but my room's way bigger and nicer and cooler. And it sort of escalates throughout the next few weeks, like Angela resenting Lucy and also her bond with Wellington. So she wants to try and get between them. So initially Angela wants her own cat. um, And she's like, why is to her mother? Why does she get a cat? Why don't I get a cat? And she's like, well, the aunt's like, well, she doesn't have any parents. (laughs) Mommy, why can't I have a cat? Because I don't want you to have one, dear. You'd think that this bird and the fish would be quite enough. You let Lucy keep Wellington. We let Lucy keep Wellington because uh, because she doesn't have a mummy and daddy. But you do. If you and daddy were killed in a plane crash, could I have a cat then? Which insinuates that if Angela also didn't have parents, she could get a cat. Yeah. This escalates more with Angela sort of gaslighting everyone in the house to believe that the cat is causing a lot of mischief and mayhem. Yeah, but it's um, this is mostly just stuff like... um paint falls on the floor while they're painting pictures or uh lucy gets some mud on her clothes when she's outside it's all like very minor but somehow it's enough to really but it's all angela's fault because yeah angela spills the paint yeah but also lucy only gets mud on her because angela is tormenting her with a remote control plane this is so evil. that she keeps that she keeps dive bombing into her yeah um, and she has to keep, you know, ducking to the ground to try and not get hit by this plane. And so apparently getting dirt on your knees is a cardinal sin, according to this aunt. And the aunt is like, well, we've got to do something about this cat. We've got to do something about this cat. So she tells the uncle, well, you need to get rid of this cat. And this is when they're like, oh, well, I talked to the vet in town. He knows someone who can take care of Yeah. Look, let's face it, that cat has to go. But honey, Lucy's crazy about Wellington. You know what Mrs. Maitland said. She suffered a bigger loss. And I refused to have all this extra work. Cat hair all over the place. It's disgusting. All right. What do you want me to do? The vet gave me the address of a place in town where they do it quietly and painlessly. Mm-hmm. Implying that the vet is not the person that puts down animals. No, there's like a separate facility in this town in like rural Quebec where someone else kills your pet. Madness. I mean, there's the implication later that Angela's, because she's 
obviously being horrible about it. She's like, because Lucy is like, where's my cat? Wellington, Wellington, where are you? She's searching for the cat. And Angela's like, Angela's like oh, well, my dad took him to the butcher. They're going to turn him into dog food. And it's like, I don't know if that's true. Maybe. But <laughs> it could be. Because they did mention a separate place where animals are put down. Yeah. So, but this is when it really amps up into, it took, takes a hard left turn I wasn't expecting. Yeah, so we did forget to mention that uh, when Lucy arrives at the house and she's unpacking with her aunt, we see in her suitcase she's got all these like witchcraft books that she doesn't really elaborate upon except to say that they belong to her mother. And we never really learn like what that so like what that's supposed to imply but i guess her mom was into like occult shit and then we see the aunt burning these books but she misses one and wellington arrives back at the house late at night and wakes up lucy surprise bitch i bet you thought you'd seen the last of me and lucy obviously overjoyed to see him (laughs) she um she's like well what do we do how do i hide you from everybody and wellington seems to just say well we need to do some witchcraft And Lucy is fucking all about it. She pulls out this, like, amulet. Then cut two. She's drawing a pentagram in chalk on the ground. (laughs) Real hard left turn. Angela comes down the stairs and is like, what the hell are you doing? And Lucy ignores her and is like, well, you know, don't stand in the circle. Um, But obviously Angela does. I forgot to add, there's a bit where she's like, I'm taller than you. I can (laughs) tell you what to do. This is my house. You have to listen to what I say. See, I'm bigger than you are. See, you'll have to do what I say. Because I'm bigger and this is my house. I can play with Wellington whenever I like and you can't stop me. That's exactly Candace's philosophy. That's that's what she lives by. But anyway, Angela steps into the circle and Lucy begins chanting. And Angela's finds she's trapped in the circle she's like oh my god I'll, i'm sorry i shouldn't have doubted you i shouldn't have been mean to you i like i won't tell my mom that your cats appeared again uh lucy does not care for this and continues chanting and we see that she's reciting some kind of shrinking spell <laughs> because angela begins to shrink obviously not so tall now bitch um <laughs> shrinks so she's really small as small as a mouse they make a point to say and then lucy seeks wellington on angela so angela's running around she goes under the table she picks like a, a pencil or something a paintbrush um to wield a weapon yes um and she she scratches wellington on the face um which is horrible then she's like she's still protesting she's still saying oh you know i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry for everything i've done lucy does not care doesn't give a shit um doesn't give a shit um she's heard all she's had to hear angela comes out from underneath the table and lucy just fucking stomps on her with her big boot yeah so the aunt gets home lucy sees the car pull up out the window realizes there's like no time to let wellington do the deed and just fucking crushes angela like steps on her (laughs) and she's gone she's gone that's it and the aunt is like oh look at the mess you're gonna have to clean this all up yeah she thinks look at all this red paint everywhere and it's like that's your daughter's blood and so see the thing here is if you were to step on a mouse and like just obliterate it you would be able to tell that it wasn't just paint exactly (laughs) There'd be some kind of viscera, like, there'd be something. You would think We all have skeletons, you know? (laughs) But um, that's how that one ends. And then we cut back to Peter Cushing, and he's all, like, you know, proud about his story, and he never makes any attempt 
to explain how he would have this version of events, which presumably would only be known by Lucy and Wellington. Exactly. And once again, Wellington was in the right. Yes. And also, he did not commit the ultimate act of murder. <laughs> A child did. Justice for Wellington. Um, so he's, and also, they were both justified. So very anti-bullying message in that particular short story, that vignette. But yeah, um, Cushing's just like, see? See? And... And Ray's, Ray's just like, like yeah. Ray's just like, yeah. Well, kids disappear all the time, so that probably won't be cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true that Angela Blake did disappear, but children disappear for all sorts of reasons. I'm sure the police will find her eventually. It's just like, yeah, they just go missing all the time, which is probably uh, an indictment on the systemic missing children's problem the United States had during the time. Yeah, he's just like, I, I still don't believe you. You know, and so Cushing, now almost desperate, uh, is like, well, okay, I've got one last story for you. And here is where we find our good friend Donald Pleasance. Yes. So this is 1936 Hollywood. Ostensibly. Um, (laughs) That's what they say. (laughs) And it's so insulting because absolutely some of the people in this would have been alive and working at the time of Hollywood 1936. Yeah. Nothing looks like Hollywood in 1936. Well, all the costumes Oops. are very specifically like mid-20s, like the hats and shit on the women. And then we've got scenes where they're filming and there's like on-set piano being played and directors talking them through scenes and shit. Now you got on the defense. Now follow through. That's it, pal. It really does feel like it was meant to be set during the silent era, and then they just kind of forgot about it. Yeah, and they just said, oh yeah, 1936, they didn't have sound in, right? Yeah, (laughs) perfect. So Donald Pleasance, it's some kind of like medieval or like Shakespearean horror film that they're filming. Entitled Hemorrhage. Yes, you know that famous 30s horror film, Hemorrhage. And it opens on him performing this scene where he's holding a woman hostage. Much like Candace. Much like Candace is being held right now, with a huge swinging axe over her, and he's asking for some kind of information. And the woman won't give it to him, and he keeps lowering and lowering the axe until it finally kills her. The director yells, cut, and you realise, yep, it's the scene that they're filming. Um, But things quickly go downhill as we realise that the woman who had been fake tortured had in fact died (laughs) because it was a real axe that was swinging. We then find out she's the wife of Donald Pleasance. Now it immediately cuts to the director and obviously the producer dressed like fucking Al Capone. (laughs) Very strange. He's looking Um, good. He's, He's nifty. He's cutting a fine figure. But they're talking about, oh, you know, the studios just found that the props were switched, you know. Well, there's, um, a, there's a detective there, which is great. There's a detective who tells them, oh, well, we think it was a mix-up in your props department and they used a real, uh, you know, blade instead of the rubber blade. But it's okay. You know, it's we've got it all figured out. You guys can start filming again. And then later on we find out this is the exact same day the woman died. Yeah. And then it's like... The director and the producer are just like, oh, well, you know, let's get back to it. Got a lot of people wanting to see this movie. 
And Donald Pleasance comes in and he's like, oh, yes, you know, my wife, it's very sad, but I think I've got somebody in mind who we can cast in her place. She would have wanted it this way. She died doing what she loved, acting. Dear Madeleine, at least she died acting, which is the way she would have wanted to go. I know that. Madeleine, always the professional. Fucking nobody cares about this woman. But he introduces, Donald Pleasance introduces the director and producer to the woman he has in mind to take the role. And this is Samantha Eggers. And she was uh, the wife's stand-in. And apparently she bears an uncanny resemblance to the dead wife, despite them being clearly 50 years apart in age. (laughs) We then find that Donald Pleasance and this woman are having an affair. I think we should also note that Donald Pleasance's character in this is named Valentine Dieth. D-E apostrophe A-T-H. And let's just say Donald Pleasance not looking hot in this. Oh no. Like, he's he's looking almost as bad as Ray. He's like blonde. Um, He's got this like slicked back sort of orangey blonde hair. It's a bad look. But it's it's heavily implied that Donald Pleasance is the one that switched the axe yes. to get rid of his wife. So he brings his young mistress home and they stumble upon the, his wife's cat, um, who is obviously very loyal to his wife. And Donald Pleasance obviously does not like the cat because he's like, I call the cat scat because he yells at the cat scat to get away. I thought I saw a pussy cat. I did. I did. Oh. He's Madeleine's. A vain, empty headed creature like his mistress. Oh, he's so cute. What's his name? I, I don't know. I call him uh, Scat. Scat, Scat, Scat? Mmm. Scat! <laughs> it's the Cat Gut Factory for you tomorrow. You frightened him. As long as I don't frighten you. Strike one. Not murdering his wife, but being mean to a cat. Strike one. (laughs) And he's like, this cat Um, is so fucking dumb. And I'm like, what do you expect from a cat? He's just a cat. Leave him alone, buddy. What do you want him to do? Trigonometry? Like, (laughs) uh... Well, as they continue on, it becomes clear that this woman, I think her name's Adina, cannot act. She's really bad at acting, and Donald Pleasance is like, well, we'll get there. After shooting some scenes, they go back to his house and they're sort of, I don't know, in their den of sin. And um, they hear the cat making some weird noises. And they go down to the kitchen and they discover that Scat is, in fact, a female and has had kittens. Now, this is the worst part of the movie (laughs) for me. Um, Donald Pleasance tries to get the cat's person is immediately scratched by the cat, but then tries again and grabs the basket full of kittens And then it's like, I'm going to get rid of these. And then starts flushing them down the toilet. What are you going to do with them? As I am, in a manner of speaking, their stepfather, I shall have to find them uh, foster parents. Mm. And baptize them by total immersion. Um, so he kills all of these freshly born kittens. And obviously that is something that we cannot abide. And in the scene, he's wearing silk pajamas with an enormous monogram that says VD, yeah. which first of all, <laughs> in the 1930s, definitely meant venereal disease. Yeah. And then, but also there's a scene where, 
where the um the young actress she says, "Oh, I love you, VD." <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the cat does not take kindly to this. On the next day, they're on the set of the movie. I think it's the next day. Yeah. They're shooting a scene. Donald Pleasance is in the middle of the set. There's some kind of, like, chandelier above him. Uh, And we see the cat chewing through the rope, holding it up. And just at the last second, Donnie moves out of the way and the object falls to the ground. And the director's like, oh, no, I told them to make sure everything should have been fine. But obviously they didn't count on a cat seeking revenge. We cut to the next scene, and it's the young actress. She's trying to shoot a scene where she has to be afraid and is about to be closed into an Iron Maiden. And she screams, but it's pretty fake. And the director's just like, oh, I just can't get any good performance out of her. And and Donald Pleasance is like, all right, all right, I'll stay late. We'll practice it. We'll do a couple run-throughs. She'll be great tomorrow. Um... Donnie takes it upon himself to sort of show her how it's done. So he gets in the Iron Maiden himself and he's, he puts on a performance. He's, it's pretty hammy. Now, I will show you what terror means. It's very simple. The cat now makes her move. I didn't the understand does the it. physics of how this happened. Yeah, the, the actress, she, she screams because she's she's really afraid now. Then the Iron Maiden closes. It's a real Iron Maiden. She gets fucking porcupine to death. <laughs> then Donald Pleasance is like, oh my god, and he tries to pry it open, but it's like obviously spring-loaded or something. And every time he tries he, to pry it open, he, like, slams it shut again, so the spikes are just going back in this woman. Yeah, just, like, making her into fucking jelly. <laughs> um, then... I've, I've forgotten exactly how Donnie comes to his end. Uh, that, we don't see it. We just see him, like, see the cat, and then it cuts to the, uh, yeah. the, the Natalie-dressed producer coming in in the morning, and he sees, he sees Donnie at his makeup table, and then we cut to the cat just eating his tongue. He's got, like... Cat's oh yeah, because and then the producer's like, "Oh, cat's got your tongue." Good morning, well. How did your rehearsal go, huh? Well, well. What's the matter? The cat got your tongue. <sighs> and it's like, oh my god. But this is, I um, absolutely do not understand what was supposed to have happened with the Iron Maiden. Like, I don't know how the cat had anything to do with that. I don't know what its plan was. Exactly. How, like, how, what did it do? Did it, like, because I know you can, with the Iron Maiden, you can crank the spikes. Right. In and out, in some of them. So maybe the the cat turned the cog so that the spikes were all the way extended. I guess that must have been it. But why were they real spikes? Because I assume for... But why were they real spikes? <laughs> there shouldn't be any kind of real blade involved. But that is the end of Cushing's sort of tales of terror. And Ray's just like, I still don't believe you. Or he's like, anything you know? could have pulled out his tongue. Yeah, exactly. Um, tongues go missing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, he's like, all right, well, I'll read through your your manuscript i'll look at all your research because cushing like pushes it into his arms he's just like look at all the research i've done look at all of the testimony i've got 
um, which implies that Cushing has been all around the world, like, taking down these stories about cats killing other he people. He needs to make people see. They need to understand. Yeah. One explanation fits all the stories, all the facts. It's here. Years of research, evidence from all over the world, proving beyond a shadow of doubt that cats have been exploiting the human race for centuries. We think we're the masters and they're merely pets, but we're wrong. They're the masters. And someday... So Ray's like, okay, okay, I'll do it. And he sees him out. Cushing goes up the stairs um, that he came towards Ray's house with and is set upon by many cats. There's cats in the trees, there's cats on the ground, they're coming up behind him. And they take him the fuck down. They push him down the stairs and kill him. Like you said, he completely, like, Father Karras is it. He's just, like, tumbling. And it's one solid fall, too. We see the whole thing. I don't know, like, what stuntman they had do that, but I don't see any padding. He just tumbles. I like to believe Cushing did it himself, but... I hope so. Man, he's like a sack of potatoes going down those fucking stairs. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ray comes back in and his cat is sitting on top of the manuscript. And they share this moment, which is incredible. That's the other thing in this movie. A lot of dramatic cat zooms. Oh, yeah. Like just boom, cat, boom, other cat. In this particular scene, we go close in on the cat's face, then on Ray's face, which is, it takes up a lot of screen. <laughs> Then it's like the cat's eyes and then Ray's eyes. So it's obviously the cat is mind controlling Ray. That's what I was inferring from that. A lot of sustained eye contact. Ray walks over, grabs the manuscript, tosses it on the fire, and then that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yeah, then we just cut to like Peter Cushing bleeding out <laughs> at the bottom of the stairs. Uh, absolutely insane. But it was a great movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. The o- There's not a lot of information on this particular movie uh the only thing in reception is that the film performed poorly at the box office (laughs) which is very unshocking and that the that lucy in the second story is the adopted daughter of charles bronson yeah charles bronson and jill ireland here we are branson missouri no pelly this is bronson missouri Mm, me Well, how do we get to Branson? Number 10 bus. Hey, Ma, how about some cookies? No dice. This ain't over. Yeah, there's not a lot of other information on it. I think it's very interesting um, because they try really hard to make the cats evil, but, I mean, in all of the stories, the cats are entirely justified and morally right to do what they did. So, I mean, I just think that Cushing really must have pissed off some cats and was trying to, like, get some kind of groundswell going to save his own skin but didn't work out so well end up didn't end up working for him so so that was the uncanny definitely worth a watch um the second film has a slightly different kind of feel obviously it's not an anthology film but again we got our killer cat story so uninvited 1987 10 years after obviously the vibe is very 80s i'll just say that it is directed by Graydon Clark, and if you don't know who that is, he is a director. He made Without Warning, which is the film that apparently inspired Predator. Um, and if you haven't seen it, absolutely incredible. Please put the clip in of um, Jack Pellett's yelling, Alien! 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 
Yeah, so we watched Without Warning a few days ago, and then we were kind of digging into Graydon Clark's filmography and realized we had not yet gotten around to watching what I had thought of as the killer cat on a boat movie. The film starts, I mean, what's first things first, this entire film, very amateurish, uh, looks like it was filmed on a home movie camera, extremely gloomy. It opens on sort of this research lab facility where they're doing some kind of experimentation on a cat, but the cat escapes and everyone's really panicking. This looks some kind of radioactive component too. Um, And they're all trying to get this cat, but the cat, there's something they've done to the cat. They've altered the cat and the cat opens its mouth and like a tiny little cat comes out. but it's like a mutant cat, and it tears the fuck out of this guy that's trying to get it. The building's secure. Now, Paul, no matter what happens, we can't let that cat out of here. Dr. Gray, you saw what just happened at that stairwell. Just shut up about that. Right now, we gotta kill that cat. Give me your gun. Give me your gun! So, initially, we kind of thought it was, like, an alien mouth, like, from the movie Alien, but as the movie goes on, you sort of come to realize that it's sort of like the mutant cat is using the normal cat's body as like a vessel, I guess. Yeah, it's like a tiny cat living inside. It's like a tiny secret cat. Yeah. So the cat escapes, and the next thing we see is like um, these two hip, young, 80s women. They're trying to get into this hotel, um, and their names are Suzanne and Bobby. And I don't know if you could get more 80s names than that. Bobby with an I. um, Bobby with an I. And so they try and get into this hotel where they meet this multi-millionaire who invites them to come and take a spin on his luxury yacht, the Cayman Islands. But we find out that this multi-millionaire... His name is Walter Graham, and he's played by Alex Cord. Yeah, but his nickname is Wall Street. Right, um, Wall Street Walter Graham. Yeah, he's doing some shady business with his sort of hulkamania assistant or associate to try and i guess it's launder money or just if they're going to the cayman islands i i assume it's something to do with money laundering or keeping money offshore um because the cayman islands is a tax haven and they're using these two spring break girls as sort of a cover they're just taking these pretty young things on a trip and that's it which actually that's like predatory behavior but Then we cut back to the cat, and the cat has been given a bowl of milk by this guy working at a gas station, and he's showing some kindness to the cat. Not supposed to give cat's milk, but he does it anyway, because that's what it was like in 1987. Then a truck pulls up, this guy comes out, and is like, give me all your money. And obviously the gas station attendant refuses, and he's knocked out, I believe, by the brute. Come here, kitty. Some change for cigarette machine? Yeah. Hey! Ah! Ah! Alright, give me the key. And the brute goes in and steals all the money and goes back to his friend in the car and they drive away. The cat 
obviously a, a morally upstanding creature. Yes, this is a cat with a moral code. Jumps into the bed of the truck and then proceeds to crash the fuck out of this truck and kill these two guys because obviously it did some they did something morally repugnant to them. And the, the truck like goes off this embankment into this creek. Oh hell yeah it does. Um after they are attacked by the little cat inside this cat. And then we cut back to the two girls. Uh, actually, it's where three spring-breaking guys with, again, very 80s names, Martin, Corey, and Lance. They're just hanging out sort of by the sea. They bump into the two girls who also invite them onto the boat. The girls are like, oh, we're going to bring these guys to Walter the mobster. Last night we met this guy, Walter Graham. He's got this great big yacht. Now, wait, are you talking about Wall Street, Walter? I mean, this guy is the best arbitrageur in the world. I mean, he's made more millions on Wall Street than anybody. Must be the same guy. You should see this boat. Well, anyways, we're supposed to set sail this morning on a cruise for the Caribbean. You've gone a couple days, maybe more. Why don't you guys come with us? You can help us handle this guy if he gets out of hand. Besides, it'll be fun. Yeah, so we've got, like, three tropes with these guys. Yeah. There's Martin is sort of the, like, preppy blonde, and he, like, admires Wall Street Walter or whatever his name is. He wants to be like him. He wants to be a millionaire. He's got that whole, like... He's a yuppie. Yeah, he's, he's got the James Spader 16 Candles thing going on. Or whichever one he was in. Pretty in Pink. And then, um... <laughs> whatever. Lance is, like, this... He's kind of the jock. He's wearing a pork pie hat. And he's got, like, the sleeves of his short sleeve shirt rolled up. And then Corey is, I believe he says he's one year away from his doctorate in, what was it, like, biology or something? He's, I don't know, he's supposed to yeah. be intelligent. I think it's biology. And it's like, there's no way a person called Corey, who looks 18, <laughs> is one year away from having their doctorate. But anyway, sus her disbelief suspended. <laughs> um, and there's this sort of, like palling around with the girls uh, on the marina, they find this cat. And I think it's, is it Suzanne who sort of immediately yeah. picks up the cat and is like, man, this is my cat now. And they take off the collar that identifies it as a research animal and throw it away. And they're just like, well, it's my cat now. Which, you know, they were just trying to do their best. <laughs> they were just trying to rescue an animal. Perhaps... They should have rethought it, though, because what the fuck are you doing taking a cat onto a yacht? But they get into, obviously, the dinghy that will take them out to the yacht, which is, it doesn't seem like a very big yacht, so I don't know why it wouldn't just be moored for them to just climb on. But anyway, so they've taken on this little speedboat to a big yacht, and Wall Street Walter is like, oh, I don't know, you've got all these guys here, and this cat, I don't know. Kind of killing my vibe. The thing is is that he only has a captain on this boat who is, what's her name? Tony Hudson, Rachel is her name. Um, and she doesn't have a crew um, because something had happened and she doesn't have a crew. I can't remember exactly what. I think but... she wasn't, this this whole trip to the Cayman Islands is kind of last minute because Wall yeah. Street Walter's in trouble. And so she wasn't prepared for this big trip. So Suzanne, she's like, well, we've got three able-bodied men here and also me and Bobby can help out. So they're kind of caught in the clutch they they need these guys on board so what wall street walter he agrees to have them on board then the kids go immediately into the lower decks of the yacht and just start partying and dancing really awkwardly to this like song i don't know what's going on but then wall street walter's like oh you know you guys having fun down here 
um, immediately kills the vibe. How do you do, fellow kids? There's this guy on the boat, his name is Albert. Um, he's like another one of their associates. He's not Wall Street Walter, obviously, and he's not like Wall Street Walter's huge fucking goon. I think we should. Um, okay, so Wall Street Walter's huge fucking goon is named Mike, and he is played by George Kennedy, who did win the uh, Best Supporting <laughs> Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Cool Hand Luke. <laughs> he's also top build in this movie. Yeah, so he's but... like a real guy, and he this is not a role for a real guy. No, um, he must have been having some problems. Yeah, this is a bit of a fall was... from grace for for George Kennedy. Um, yeah, but he's like he's quite crabby, huge goon. But he's they've got this other guy, Albert. He's on the boat, and he is drunk at night on deck. And I don't know why, but the cat decides Albert needs to die. Pushes Albert into the water and he falls overboard. Um, we don't really see it. It's very dark, as I've said. Very gloomy. Can't see much of what's going on. Everyone finds his blood on deck the next day and they can't find him. And they're just like, oh, well, I guess he got drunk and fell off overboard, you know. Just like kids go missing all the time, people fall overboard all the time, you know. Just happens. Um, and they're not overly concerned about him going missing. They don't, and because of the nature of this trip, the fact that they're going to launder money essentially in the Cayman Islands, Walter and Mike uh, tell the captain not to report it yeah. because she wants to tell the Coast Guard, tell people to come so they can search. Um, but she's dissuaded from doing that by. Walter just saying that, you know, it's they're not going to find him alive. It would just be a lot of hassle, blah, blah, blah. But what happens is, is that, is it Martin? No, Corey. <laughs> Whichever one is the biologist. Corey. Corey. Um, takes a sample of the blood and somehow there's a lab on this yacht, but he starts analyzing it um, and he finds something a bit abnormal in the blood. And he's like, oh, there's a lot of blood cells in this blood. <laughs> Um, but they don't don't have any further thing to say about that. Then cut to sort of the girl named Bobby. She's exercising. Well, it's she says she's exercising. It's kind of like a Jane Fonda workout, except like I don't know what she's working out. She's just kind of doing stretches. Yeah. Um, in those and another thing to note, they've taken like five different swimsuits each. Oh yeah. On this boat, or with that crazy high sort of over-the-hip the, like, intentional 80s wedgie flavor. They just seem deeply uncomfortable, and I'm glad we've moved past that as a society. But she's approached by Wall Street Walter, and he attempts to rape her. Lance, the, the jock one, he comes in and tries to stop what's happening from happening. Then Mike comes around the corner while they're tussling, just fucking shoots <laughs> Lance in the arm. Um, doesn't even, like, shoot first, ask questions later is kind of the vibe. That's very literally what from... it is, because he shoots and then he says, what's going on here? Yeah. Hey, what the hell are you doing? I just get lost, kid. This is none of your business. Leave her alone. Stop it. Oh. What the hell is going on, Walt? Dumb kid jumped me when I wasn't looking. Yeah. No, you can't! Just watch me. Mike, wait, hold it! But it's all sort of going off. People, and like, everyone else sort of comes around the corner, just one by one, because obviously they heard the shot. And it's at this point where Mike is bitten on the Achilles by the cat's little mouth, 
little cat mouth. And it's like a crazy looking bite. It's like fully ripping his Achilles tendon out. I will say to the credit of this movie as an 80s horror movie, the gore is like insane. It's pretty full on gore. I mean, it's kind of on trend because uh, in Without Warning, the gore in that's pretty brutal. So everything kind of stops and they're like trying to work out exactly what happened. What we see in Mike is some kind of like alien situation where obviously the cat's bite is poisonous and we thought naturally that he was infected with another cat yeah and that a cat was gonna burst out of his chest because there's like this kind of bulging yeah this big bubble like rises from his flesh out of his chest and it's like pulsating and it's like man is are we gonna have two cats in the mix that'd be awesome no no, it just sort of is there. It, it pulsates until he dies and then it's over. Yeah, and then he dies. And then they've, they've deduced, the biologist one is like, oh, well, obviously the cat is venomous. And he's get, kind of getting close to the captain. So we're seeing it's like, like pairing off. Yeah, it's like Bobby and the jock, Suzanne and the yuppie, and then the biologist and the captain all hook up. And, and so they're all kind of a bit amped up now. They're like ready for the cat to attack them they're on edge even though the cat only attacked mike because he literally shot a person (laughs) i mean the cat hasn't set one foot wrong yet the captain and suzanne try and call for help but walter obviously destroys that because he really wants to get to the cayman islands even though his goon has died and they throw they throw mike overboard they give him a burial at sea and then i don't know but Apparently everyone in the 80s is just really horny. This is a scene where Bobby and the jock one, Lance, they're having some kind of sexy time. <laughs> and because, like, obviously Bobby's like, well, thank you so much for saving me. And, you know, is your arm okay? And the Lance is like, oh, you know, I can't really feel it. And then they look down at his arm and the cat has bitten off his fingers. <laughs> Um, and then he freaks out because he's like, he knows the cat is poisonous and he like freaks out. He jumps up, goes onto the deck and he's like, oh my God, I'm like poison. The cat's poison is in me. He's screaming, I've got the poison in my blood. I've got the poison in my blood. Yeah. Did you see it? I got the poison in my blood. Screaming that, he jumps over, he attempts to jump overboard, and everyone else on the ship sort of comes in and is like, What the fuck is happening? But he's so agitated, so crazy, he pulls him and Bobby overboard. And I don't know, I don't know why they immediately leave Bobby for dead, <laughs> but they're just like, Oh well, they're both dead. I mean, the yacht isn't that big, it's not like a cruise liner. Bobby is exclusively wearing swimsuits through this whole movie, so you would think she'd probably be able to stay afloat for a bit. She'd probably be fine. But um, no, they they don't try and rescue either of them. The rest of the crew is like, well, okay, we've got to try and lure this cat out. Uh, it's kind of at this point that the yuppie kind of makes a deal with Wall Street Walter. He's like, oh, you know, if you do what I say... We'll get to the Cayman Islands. I'll make you my partner. It's all going to be sweet. 
And he just eats it up because he's obviously wants to emulate this criminal. Greed is good and all that. Meanwhile, Suzanne, she just decides after four people have died, she's going to sleep topless on the boat. And it's like, man, I just would not be doing that with a wild mutant cat running around and people dying. I'd want to be ready to, like, jump out of bed at any given opportunity. But anyway. But that wouldn't be sexy. Um, That wouldn't be sexy. But the yuppie comes in and after initially scaring her, and, and they obviously bang for whatever reason. But the problem is, while this is all happening, they're trying to lure the cat out with food. But the cat, too clever for all of these people. The yuppie, he like, tries to shoot the cat once it comes out. But because he shoots, I don't know what it is, in a ship. I don't know enough about ships. It's like a boiler. It would be the engine. Steam engine. It doesn't seem like a steam-powered yacht, though. Who fucking knows? Anyway, I'm not rich enough to have been on boats all of that, all that much in my lifetime. He shoots it. He gets blasted by steam and roasted to death, well, steamed to death. The cat then gets into the food, the remaining food on the yacht, and infects all of the food. So the captain and the biologist lock all the food up so no one can eat it. Uh, Suzanne, though, kind of goes crazy and is like, well, you're just keeping it all for yourselves. Well, Suzanne has been kind of descending into madness because she feels guilty because she brought the cat on the boat. Yeah. Which she did. Yeah, <laughs> you, you really did do that, Suzanne. And she's like, oh, she's also like, oh, do you think this is my fault because I took the, the collar off the cat? We should have told them that it was a research facility cat. And it's like, I mean, to be fair, no one would have considered that it had a tiny mutant cat inside it. <laughs> but yeah, she, she kind of goes full like the thing against everybody and steals the food for herself. Um, but then the poison infects her, obviously. And she also gets one of the horrible bulges. And this one's in her neck, which is fucking gross. It was gross. Um, But uh, it kills her. Then the yacht is hit by a storm uh, and begins to sink. And it's around this point where, like, most of the movie was filmed on a real yacht. And they have a lot of exterior shots of the yacht. But once the storm starts, we keep cutting to the outside of the yacht. And it's very clearly a toy in, like, a tank. It's very clearly a toy. It's like a toy boat. Amazing. Um, I feel like we, if we made a film, it would be of this quality. Yeah, this really is like we made a movie about like your cat. I mean, to be fair, I wouldn't be surprised if my cat had a tiny evil cat. Inside <laughs> him. Um, he's fat enough to be hiding <laughs> another cat in there. So once the the ship starts sinking, they they obviously try and evacuate. So at this point, only Walter, the captain, and the biologist are still left alive. Um, Walter throws the money that he's trying to lure into the wife, lifeboat, and he tries to go and get, like, the last briefcase, but is killed by the cat, because um, obviously the cat can sense his greed and his criminality and won't stand for it. A deeply morally upstanding mutant cat. Exactly. Again, I am on the cat's side. Just like when we watched Cujo, I was on Cujo's side. Yeah. So... That leaves only the captain and the biologist left, and they get onto a lifeboat and are like, oh, you know, waiting, chilling. But the cat pops out of the water onto the lifeboat and starts attacking them again. And it leads to, like, one last tussle before they knock the cat overboard. And we assume that, well, we see the cat get onto one of the briefcases of money, which are now floating in the water, but it can't get to them. It just sort of floats away. Well, this is their big plan because... 
the cat like jumps back on the boat like two times and at one point we even get the <laughs> biologist saying it's not over yet as the cat like keeps just you know hopping back on and then they're like okay well he's gonna keep doing this forever unless we give him something that something to float away on so they dump all the money into like a duffel duffel bag and throw out yeah. the uh, briefcase for the cat to float away on just like chilling kind of like the end of joe versus the volcano <laughs> yeah totally um, on the suitcase just sort of floating in the water then the the captain and the biologist finally reach the cayman islands and they just decide to start living in the cayman islands like they're talking to the police chief and he's like well i couldn't find any evidence of anything you guys have said but um you can keep all that money though and i guess they just decide to live in the caymans meanwhile the kind of end to the movie is this it's set on this beach and there's a kid playing and a cat appears and there's sort of ominous music as the cat picks up the uh, no as the boy picks up the cat it's very obviously a different cat it's an entirely different cat because the cat the cat in the the rest of the movie is a a ginger tabby long hair because it has you know big puffy tail and everything yeah this cat is a short hair sort of a darker colored tabby and then it just ends in a freeze frame of the kid holding the cat and then we're like did the little cat get into another cat like what what's the kind of sequel bait here that we're trying to i thought we tied it up pretty nicely and another through line between this and the uncanny is that we do get another dramatic cat zoom on that freeze frame we do i mean there were a few sort of dramatic zooms on the cat as there should be and obviously another through line is obviously the people holding something that's just furry like a furry puppet and pretending it's attacking (laughs) them that happened a lot in both um which i always think very great filmmaking to see when it's like a Muppet attacking you. It was a fun movie. I liked it, even though the production value was pretty bad. I had fun watching it. They really got me with the little cat inside a big cat sort of babushka situation. (laughs) (laughs) That was a real, I was blindsided by that one. So I went into this expecting killer cat, obviously, but a tiny, tiny little cat inside big cat, not so much. But the, um, the gore effects and everything too, sort of, they're gross, but sort of take it to, I think, slightly above where normal sort of B-horror in the 80s would have been. I guess they would have spent all their money on production on the effects, though, is the thing, not on cameras. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it was very interesting. I think in terms of which cat is evil, I'd say no cat in either of these films is evil. I've got to say I'm on the cat's side the entire time, um, in no matter what context, because neither of these films managed to convince me that cats are inherently evil. Which was um, Peter Cushing's entire thesis. Yeah, exactly. So it's a fail on that respect, which, you know, try harder. But maybe the Italians have 
have some more persuasive arguments. we got to get into that and report back later. Yeah, there's got to be something they know that we don't know. Exactly. What do they know? Just in terms of the sheer volume of evil cat movies they have produced. Oh, the other thing we should notice, they only paid for two stock cat meows. Yes. And they are used liberally throughout the entire thing, and it is so obvious that they're the same two meows. This cat is extremely vocal, and he makes two noises. And don't you run away from Mama anymore. It's so hot. <laughs> now, Suzanne, you remember our deal. You keep that cat away from me. Well, I'll give it a swimming lesson. <laughs> oh, it's just a sweet little thing. You're not going to hurt anybody, are you, baby? Yeah. <laughs> I am such a pushover. <laughs> <laughs> um, so crazy. Like, it's just like, surely, like, just make a cat noise. Go into Foley, pretend to be a cat. It would be better than hearing the same two noises over and over again. <laughs> so that was pretty crazy. It's silly. Um, definitely doesn't have the same kind of tension that the first, the, the Uncanny does, but has a lot more of that sort of wacky 80s, very hopped up on cocaine feeling. It's extremely um, worth it too for the number of incidents where people just open fire. Yeah, just asking questions later, huh? Worst case scenario. Um <laughs> So yeah, I I think in terms of cat horror, it's not on the level of cat people, which I think we will do a do a proper deep dive into because that's a that's a very interesting movie. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say? Like, yeah, I would just uh, I think both of these movies are very schlocky, you might say, but they're they're worth watching if you're into like sort of hokey 70s horror or very bloody exploitation 80s horror. They're both they're both fun. Yeah, I mean, Tiff and I, this is kind of our thing. We like bad um, movies. I know that's not a we, rare thing to say. It's not like a controversial opinion, but we spend a lot of time watching shit like this. Just for fun, too. Not even for a fucking podcast. No, just, just pass um, the time. Um, like, we we sort of go through year by year 80s sort of trash horror, and we've seen some real shockers. I wouldn't put these in the um, the bucket of the normal ones that we watch, Obviously, there's a little bit more class in the uncanny. I don't think that is because of Ray Milan's presence, <laughs> though. But obviously, that's worth watching for the oddity of, like, you were closer to the 1930s than we are now. So surely you should have had a better understanding because, like, a lot more people would have been alive within living memory of that time it's so weird it's like whoever did the subtitles the like little introductory subtitles stating the the date and setting just didn't read the script did it in complete isolation yeah. to everybody else yeah. like what but obviously it's redeemed by the incredible scene of a child who's been shrunk down in size getting crushed <laughs> by a boot um did not see that one coming incredible incredible filmmaking i think for both of them though it's like it's incredible to think about somebody writing a script and then seeing it produced and then still being like this is good to release it's the incredible amount of confidence i mean i'm sure not every person who sees a film is like well that turned out exactly how i wanted to it's perfect but I mean, there must just be a point where it's gone too far and you can't go back now and you're like... It's like an avalanche, yeah. can't stop it. 
can't stop the wheels turning. I mean, I guess that's true, but also, like, imagine if it was, like, your magnum opus to write this cat anthology and then for it to be the uncanny. (laughs) But anyway, we do always value people who work on films and make films. Like, I think even a bad film can be a good film. Mm -hmm. Like, these are both enjoyable films. Like I said, Um, I I genuinely believe a lot of effort and care went into the gore in Uninvited. mm, Like, people really cared about that, and you can tell. They didn't care so much about the lighting, but that's okay. Yeah, and I think that's that's what kind of seals the deal for me in enjoying them, because it's like, I feel like the people who made them were really proud of the aspects that they had controlled, and maybe not the costumes in The Uncanny, but (laughs) I think that always sort of sings through in a movie, and I think that's worth noting. Whereas it can be juxtaposed, obviously, with me being incensed at something like Mank, where they go on and on about the effort they've gone to, to like, get everything exactly how it would have been at the time it was made, and it still looks like shit. So, (laughs) all right, Tiff, how many tiny girls being crushed to death by boots would you give this out of 10? I would give the uncanny... Maybe a 6 out of 10. How many really poorly ADR'd British <laughs> children meant to sound North American would you give the uncanny out of 10? I'm going to give it I'm going to give it 5 and a half. Fair enough, yeah. Um okay, for uninvited, how many cats inside other cats would you give this out of 10? This is maybe where I'll give it a five and a half, because there are some stretches that are kind of dull, but I think the insanity in between makes up for it, so I'd say five out of ten. Um, how many swimsuits would you give uninvited out of ten? Well, it's going to be five, um, because that's how many they had <laughs> Perfect. On each on the boat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think I think definitely that we recommend watching watching both of these if you're so inclined. Um, definitely more so if you're interested in classic film. The Uncanny is probably more more interesting to you just to see where some careers ended up. Some uh, big <laughs> eggy skulls. <laughs> the thing is with that the juxtaposition between Ray's sort of almost perfectly spherical head <laughs> and then Peter Cushing's like extremely gaunt, almost hollow face he's like a walking skull it's it's like skeletor it's crazy um it's worth it just for that if you don't want to watch the bits in between with all the cat violence you can just watch it's sort of like my dinner with andre except it's (laughs) my dinner with sugar ray yeah exactly (laughs) so yeah definitely definitely a strong recommendation for that um if you've got a bit of time and want to get a bit silly and yeah we are hopefully going to be a bit more productive this year when it comes to recording podcasts we can't make any promises though because we've learned our lesson no more promises as always you can catch us on our social media um at basket pod on both instagram and twitter if you would like to talk to the kidnappers about how candace is doing you can reach us there if you want to raise some money to get her released (laughs) you could we're not gonna do it but we won't stop you yeah everybody stay safe Make sure you are always good to cats. Yes. Because you never know. They have strong moral codes and they will act on them. Exactly. They will seek revenge. And they know how to behead people, apparently. Exactly. And you never know, if you see a cat on the street, you never know if it's got a tiny little cat inside it. So just watch out. Keep that in mind. Stay safe out there. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
like just ripping sh- shreds off. Oh my god! Hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Okay, okay. Yeah, bye. Um, hang on one second. My evil cat is demanding to be let out. The door is open. Just push it. You've got enough mass. <laughs> Go on. magic it's open go out he's just sitting there i've opened the door and he's just sitting there anyway he's gonna murder me for sure